We're going to do what we love to do every gathering, and that is we're going to open the scriptures and look at the life of Jesus. And to do that, we've been doing a series. We're into uh, like month number four of this thing now. Uh, the series is called Holy Following Christ where we've been exploring this beautiful and balanced vision of the Christian life. We're trying to explore, if we're invited to follow Christ, then what is this life he invites us to? Uh, the phrase that's in John chapter 10 is this phrase, parisos zoe, this abundant life. So if we're invited to an abundant life and following Christ, then what makes that an abundant life what it is? What, what's, what's the shape that it has? And so we've been working our way through these six facets. Uh, we've done the spirit-empowered life. We've done the word-anchored life. We've done the consecrated life, and now we're doing the compassionate life, and we started that last week. And so if you are new today, or if today you're here and you missed last week, it would be really good to go back and listen to last week's podcast, so you can kind of get caught back up to this moment, just to know what it is we're talking about as we talk about compassion, what we're thinking about with that. But today we want to dig a little bit deeper, and today we want to keep thickening up what it is to have the compassionate life. And so I want to invite you to stand here too for the reading of scripture. And today, Dylan Jones is going to come and he's going to read scripture for us. Join us. Oh, whoo, whoo. Gonna, our, our scripture readers are getting hollers now. That's good. So join us uh, in uh, the reading of James chapter 2, 14 to 18. If you want to open your own Bibles and follow along, feel free. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on the, on the side table there. And you're always welcome to grab one and, and keep that if you, if you don't have one. So Dylan, over to you. Thank you, my man. James 2, 14 to 18. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say, goodbye, and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now some may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. This is the word of God for us today. Praise be to God. Let's do it again. Praise be to God. That's it. Grab a seat, thank you. Lord, would you... Would you take these words and by your spirit, would you um, plant them well in our hearts today that they would grow something good and fruitful in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, in a 2015 article in The Spectator, British journalist James Bartholomew popularized a modern usage of a term. The term is... Virtue signaling. And you've probably heard of it. It's been around since about 2004. But in Bartholomew's article, he thrust it into popular slang fashion. Now, this phrase, it speaks of when a person expresses, often online, so it's often an online thing, the right moral standpoint to look good. So whether it's a chocolate company advertising the fact that they are fair trade, whether it's a bank advertising the fact that they are diverse, whether it's a car being good for the environment, or whether it's individuals on their Instagrams posting a blackout square in support of Black Lives Matter, or blue and yellow boxes in support of the Ukraine, 
This is the posting, and it can become the appearance of standing for something good, of being moralistic, and of being right. But there is often a problem, because under the hood, the right action isn't being taken, and there's actually an element of smugness involved. So in his article, Easy Virtue, Bartholomew summed up virtue signaling as empty boasting, quote, stating that this online action of doing this is often, quote, just a camouflage, end quote, saying of the problem that it's creating this, saying this, no one actually has to do anything. Virtue comes from mere words or even from silently held beliefs. There was a time in the distant past when people thought you could only be virtuous by doing things that involve effort and self-sacrifice. Now, all day long, we are surrounded by messaging of good intention. People online and companies outworking their marketing strategies trying to show us that they are for the right things in the world. They want to be part of heading in the right direction, going with the flow towards what is moral and what is right. But sometimes, that intention is not being followed through on. So what about when the words aren't marrying up to right action? You know, for example, I heard another term the other day. Have you guys heard of this one? Greenwashing. Anyone heard of this? Yeah. So greenwashing is when a company claims to be environmentally responsible, but then it turns out they're not. They want the image of being environmental, but they're not following through. You know, one classic example of greenwashing is uh, the car giant Volkswagen. Any Volkswagen drivers in their house today? Shame upon you. <laughs> Who, Volkswagen were caught cheating emissions tests by fitting various vehicles with a defeat device. Um, it was software that would detect when the car was undergoing its emissions testing, and it would then alter the performance to reduce the emissions levels of the cars. All while VW were touting their low emissions features of their vehicles through their marketing campaigns. But in truth, these engines were actually emitting up to 40 times the allowed limit of nitrogen oxide pollutants. It's greenwashing. Speaking of fossil fuels, they're not alone, V-Dub. There's also the fuel giant BP. Anyone fill up a BP this week? Shame on you. No, no. Um, so BP, what is BP meant to stand for? Apparently it's meant to stand for beyond petroleum. Beyond pe petroleum. They've put solar panels onto their gas stations. They're appearing to go green, but they got called out for their green misdirection and their practices of drilling for the petroleum that they said that they were moving beyond. Or even more recently, Coca-Cola or Coca-Cola or Coke. Any Coca-Cola drinkers in the house today? Shame. No. Um, the, Coca-Cola has been accused recently of greenwashing through their new natural sugar claims that they've stated in their marketing as a way to attract more health-conscious consumers, which turn out to not be natural at all. You know, as consumers, why do I say all this? I say this because as consumers, we don't like feeling misdirected, do we? We instinctively know that change for good is a good thing, but it isn't just words. It needs to be action too. You know, so as the global conversation around climate justice and sustainability intensifies and a brand then says they are doing their noble thing and playing their part in that story, we want to believe that they are contributing and caring for this just as they say they are. We want to believe that they are joining the fight that we are trying to fight too. So whether it's companies or whether it's brands or whether it's individuals on their Instagrams, there's two things at play at all of this that I just want to point out. Number one, there's this desire 
a desire to be seen doing the right thing and contributing to making the world a better place, to, to stand for what is right. There's a desire to stand for what is right. But point number two is this, words and actions must be congruent to that desire. They must line up. I recently heard John Ortberg say at a little pastor's conference that I was at with him, he said this, if there is a gap between what you say you believe and how you live, people always believe how you live. He's right. And in the reading from James today, that, that Dylan so wonderfully read for us just before, what a voice. James's argument, his punchy argument is faith without deeds is dead. Faith, this belief and this trust in God, this this position that we take is not, if it's not living something, if it's not actually producing anything, then it's not alive at all, says James. It hasn't woken up to the full story of God. It's incomplete. And so James ties faith to good works, that is doing good works that are helping to make the world right as it should be, he ties them together and he says, if you want to have an alive faith, well, have a congruent faith that looks like that. Now, now it's one thing for me to point to the internet or point to Volkswagen or Coca-Cola and point out all the problems, okay? But there's an old saying, I'm not sure if you've heard the saying, but it goes like this. When you point your finger, there are three pointing back at you. And so it's good to remember as much as naturally you want to transfer this to other people, Volkswagen, big corporate brands, those people on Instagram, today, today is a talk that's a bit more like a mirror. It's a bit more of a mirror. It's a moment of self-reflection. It's a moment to kindly ask together, how are we actually doing at this? And by we, I mean this. I mean our, our church farmer. I mean Central Vineyard. I mean this community whether you're visiting for the first time today or whether you've been here a long time. And by us, I mean you. And I mean me. And I just want to ask, are we, are we living in congruence to this? Or are we guilty of the same incongruence? Are our actions lining up with our words as we consider the aches of the world? Or are we just offering lip service? Or are we doing something? Are we doing what we can? So as we looked at last week, the compassionate life is the life of Jesus. And I'm just going to quickly summarize last week that compassion is an embodied relief to suffering. It is the life of Christ that came to lovingly enter into the gap of what is not as it should be. And it is setting things right. And we are called to be moved by compassion was the phrase from last week. To what are you moved by compassion? And we are moved to compassion to then embody compassion lived into the world. And Richard Foster in his book, Streams of Living Water, he connects the compassionate life to the work of social justice. He argues compassionate life of the Christian is the context for social justice and right living. They aren't separate, they exist together. So we are to be people of compassion for social rightness. That's the title of today's talk. Today I want to thicken up where we started last week and I want to look further at the embodiment of compassion that we are called to live. And to do so, what I want to do is I want to look around at what social justice would have looked like for Jesus of Nazareth. 
What was the vision of social justice for Jesus? So to do that, we are going to have to undo time a little bit. We're going to have to time travel. We're going to have to head back to a context where the internet posts and where Instagram squares are not yet a thing, where hashtags and marketing lines are not the way that social justice plays out and not the leading edge of activism. We have to go back to three Hebrew words, three Hebrew words that formed the image of social justice for Jesus. And here they are, three Hebrew words. The first word is hesed. The second word is mishpat. And the third word is shalom. Should we say that together? First one, left one, right one. Firstly, hesed. Hesed is perhaps the word of the three that speaks the best of compassion. So I'll start there. This is a word so potent with meaning that translators often struggle to find an English equivalent. But usually it's the word in our Bible behind the phrase loving kindness or steadfast love. It's a word most frequently used in reference to God's unwavering compassion for his people. God's wonderful hesed is his love, as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 103 verse 17. Oops, I don't have that, that's all right. It moves from everlasting to everlasting. Or again in Psalm 106 verse 1, it is his steadfast love that endures forever. It is his hesed that endures forever. Now remember from last week, compassion is God's nature of love towards us. So the psalmist here is fleshing that out with this word hesed. His compassion towards us is his posture of love that is steadfast and everlasting. It is a committed love. It is a love that is going to go the distance and it is going to remain constant the whole duration. Now, recently, uh, for those of you who know, I went to the US. I was in Portland, Oregon, and I got to attend an awesome pastor's conference. And then at the end, I got to go and stay at a Benedictine monastery for a couple of days. This is the Benedictine monastery here, so pretty beautiful space. Um, This monastery is over 150 years old as a functioning monastery, and currently there are 52 monks who are living there. And for the last 150 years, every monk that has lived in this monastery has taken a vow and uh, a series of vows and commitments to the way of the rule of Benedict, St. Benedict. And one of the vows they take, one of three core vows, is the vow of stability. This vow means this. I will stay here until I die. So on the monastery grounds, there is a cemetery. And in the cemetery are the last 150 years of monks. 150 years of monks who have taken the same vow. And the current 52 monks who were there praying all day, doing their work all day, serving us all day as guests, they will join them. Now, on one of the evenings, we had this absolute pleasure of getting to stay up late and party with a couple of monks. That's a phrase not many people say, but I can say it. We got to stay up late and we got to enjoy a bottle of red wine with a couple of monks, Stephen and Anselm. Now, both of them were in their late 20s and we were just talking about life with them late into the night. We are asking them about their life in the monastery and there were some really funny stories. Monks are funny. But we asked them about this vow of stability. And they both mockingly and jokingly just sort of said like, well, when you take a vow of stability to stay here till you die, it means you have to sort your crap out with each other. 
because you can't avoid someone for the next 50, 60, and 70 years. You have to sort it out. And they were joking about it, but actually they were serious. This vow to stay there means they choose an intentional and different way of expressing love to each other and fixing relationships and being constant with one another for the rest of their days. Now I wonder, I wonder if those monks are an embodiment of what it is I'm trying to scratch at the surface with today with Hesed. You know, they lived the stability as a sign of God's Hesed towards us. His Hesed is steadfast and it always will be. No matter what we do, God will always be the one of Hesed towards us. And if compassion, if compassion is this great response to sin and brokenness and suffering, then what Hesed tells us is God is greatly interested in our sin and our brokenness and our suffering being made right. We fleshed that out a little bit last week, but today I just want to double down again and say that when there are gaps as things are not as they should be, and as we all walk in life and all of those gaps that we find ourselves in, we have a God of Hesed, which means God has sought to mercifully enter into those gaps. And that's why Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection is such good news for us to have sung about today and to have come to his table for today. In Jesus, we see God entering himself into the great gap himself. And the great challenge for us is that this covenant love that God has shown, this durable posture is so central to the character of God. And I think we can kind of go, great, well, that's, that's God, that's good. We'll, we'll, we'll leave him to it. But actually, God then calls us to reflect it as well. Now, I used a scripture a few weeks ago, and let me just revisit it. It's Hosea 6 verse 6, where God declares through the prophet this, I desire steadfast love, has said, and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You know, part of God's plan has always been that his people would be like him and embody that steadfast love to others. How? Well, well, let's just run through a couple of things from even like the Old Testament that Jesus would have been aware of that made it look like this. You know, in the Levitical law, in, in Leviticus, you know, it states how things are meant to be done. Things like farmers, when they're harvesting their crop, they're to leave some of their crop along the borders and the grain that fell on the ground so that the poor could come along and they could gather it for themselves afterwards. Or or the vineyards and the olive groves, they were not meant to be stripped bare. Everything was not meant to be taken from them. In order to make provision for the needy, they were were meant to leave some behind so people who needed some could come along behind. If, If you were poor in the Israelite culture, you knew that every harvest season there would be something for you constantly. This was part of the architecture of Israelite society. Or if someone borrowed your ox cart and left you their coat as a pledge, you had to be sure that that night, if you had their coat, you would give it back to them after sunset. Why? Because nighttime is cold, and that person would need their coat coat for warmth. Or in Deuteronomy 24 verse 10, it says, no one was ever to barge into a neighbor's house to retrieve what had been loaned. Rather, they're to knock and wait, and the lender is to come to the front door and give them what they have loaned. You know, no, no, these are sort of strange little laws. Like It's like, well, weird details, Dan, to bring up today in your talk. But, but know what's going on here. This was the architecture of Israel. This was the way life was lived. These laws do something. What do they do? They're meant to make generous people, gracious people, courteous people. Has said being enacted feels like that. 
That's what it looks like. So when his said is acted out, we'll taste generosity, we'll taste graciousness, we'll taste courtesy, we'll taste kindness. So if we go back to Hosea, that scripture up there, God is saying that these somewhat small enactments of Hesed, they're actually more important to him than the ways of the acts of worship were being conducted in the temple. Now just think about that for a second. That is a huge call. God is saying those little acts of Hesed, they make my heart more glad than when the temple is kind of in full action doing all the stuff that it's meant to do. Why? Because God really cares that his said is embodied by his people. He really cares about it. Which brings us nicely to the second part of the triangle. We're going now to Mishpat. Now technically, Mishpat means justice. But it's an expansive word, rich in meaning, and it carries social, ethical, and religious connotations. It actually involves a morality over and above strict legal sense, and it includes observance of good custom, of established practice, especially the practice of an equitable distribution of land. Those are all very big words. I copy and pasted that, yes. It is used to constantly, it is used constantly in conjunction with the Hebrew word for righteousness. Biblical scholars actually believe that the two concepts, justice and righteousness, that they shouldn't actually be viewed as separate, but actually that they should be viewed synonymous of one another. Hence why I've been saying a few times now in this talk and last week, social justice is social rightness. God's justice has a metric. It's not just some lofty idea that we have to figure out. God's justice is aimed at Things being at rights. Things being how they were always meant to be. So have you ever wondered that common question that people often um, wonder? It goes like this. Um, well, if God is so good, then why are so many bad things happening in the world? You ever wondered that question? Dangerous question, eh? What's a good question? But I just want to tamper with that question a little bit. And I just want to ask something a little more helpful. The question is this. What does a good God do about the bad things in the world. What does a good God do about the bad things in the world? Well, I've already mentioned a bunch of stuff out of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Let me just sort of thicken up with a few more things here, um, as I've already mentioned. Um, we are told in the scriptures that God executes mishpat, executes justice for the orphan and for the widow. He loves strangers. He provides them with food and clothing. That's in Deuteronomy 10. Verse 18, the psalmist declares, the Lord works vindication and mishpat, justice, for all who are oppressed. Psalm 103. This justice, this mishpat, it involves this wisdom of bringing things to be equitable, harmonious, and harmonious between people and in land. And so when Solomon prays for the wisdom to govern his people justly or with mishpat, God responds, you have asked for something to discern what is right. What is right in 1 Corinthians 3. So this was meant to be this pattern for the kings and the political leaders to then follow. They were expected to exercise this quality of compassion and care for their people, living out justice, mishpat, on behalf of all the people. But if we fast forward from Solomon, we find people like Jeremiah lamenting that justice could not be found anywhere in Jerusalem, says Jeremiah. The leaders have failed to live out Solomon's prayer, 
from earlier. Things that God had institutionalized into the system of compassionate justice through things like, um, have you heard of this thing called the Year of Jubilee? The year of Jubilee was something that every 50 years, that the, again, the architecture of Israel, this is stunning stuff. Every 50 years, Israel would hit a hard reset and they would, um, they would wipe all of their debts with each other. Slaves would be freed. Land would be returned to the owners. And it would be a year of rest for the whole nation, a year of Sabbath for the whole nation. But instead, what happens is political leaders in Israel actually then institutionalize a system of hardening injustice to the people. And so in Isaiah, in Isaiah, the prophet scopes this up. He says this at the start of Isaiah 10. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression into the people. God, we are told by Isaiah, was disgusted by all of this pious ritual because they lack social relevance to the poor. And so the fast that God desires for his people is, as Isaiah 58 says, is to loosen the bonds of injustice, to let the oppressed go. God's justice, God's mishpat is for people to share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your homes for beds to sleep on. So, so just with those bits and pieces, let me just kind of use that as a sketch to say this. So what does a good God do about the bad things in the world, if that's the question? Well, well, all of those things can give us one answer. It's not the only answer, but this is one answer. The answer is this. God calls his people to change the wrong story into the right one. God calls his people to, to live a different story for the oppressed, for the poor, for the hungry, for the orphan, for the widow. The people of God have been called to live mishpat into being. And so that's mishpat. It's this active pursuit for things to be right for all. Now, now some of you, some of you in the room right now, you're activists and you're, you're like, your leg is twitching a little bit. And you're like, yeah, you tell them, Dan. This is the stuff that the church should be. This is the stuff the church needs to be known for. Yeah, you get them, Dan. You get them. That's the story. Good preaching today. Preach. But allow me just to tamp this a little bit with a, a word of care. And it's this. Mishpat is not a lone wolf. There is an interaction here. It's the interaction of Mishpat with Hesed. Now, one of the most amazing tensions of the scriptures is the way that the biblical writers will weave together things that sort of shouldn't go together so that they do go together. And one of the things we see them weave together is that this justice of Mishpat and the compassion of Hesed are meant to come together. You know, to deliver justice, to, to deliver what is due to someone, that's one thing. But the spirit in which we do it, the way we give it out, the way we relate to people, that's another thing altogether as well. And so what must be considered in the scriptures is that one of the tasks from looking at the Hebrew scriptures in particular that Jesus was looking at is that we see this blending of the demands, justice and compassion. Let them be existing together. So in Micah, a lot of you will know this scripture. Many youth camps have been framed around this, this scripture, Micah 6 verse 8. But it goes like this. He has shown you, O people, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Act justly, Mishpat, and love mercy, said, and to walk humbly with your God. So here's the tension. There it is existing together. The interaction of these two forces. God is compassionately just. 
The world may take their choice of the two and separate them, removing justice from mercy, oh, sorry, yeah, removing justice from mercy, pulling them apart. But in the kingdom of God, they are not to be separated. They are a meeting point. They are together. They are not drawn apart. Or another way to put it, I love how the psalmist puts it here in Psalm 85 verse 10. Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Isn't that a beautiful scripture? Steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Steadfast and everlasting love meets with righteousness. But the psalmist is actually adding one other dimension into there. Peace. And that brings us beautifully to the last part of the triangle. One last Hebrew word that would have been part of the portrait of social justice for Jesus. Shalom. Now shalom is often translated as the word peace, but actually peace is not a good definition for shalom because our idea of peace is like the absence of stuff. You know, tranquil and chill, everything's at peace. But shalom means everything is at right. So it means everything is whole. It means everything is in unity. Everything is in balance. Everything is as it should be. That's the core phrase of shalom. Shalom is everything as it should be. Shalom embodies this vision of a harmonious, all-inclusive community of loving persons being at one with each other. Shalom is the planet no longer groaning, but thriving. Shalom is the end of swords for war and instead plowshares being beaten out of that metal for gardening. The great vision of Shalom is the bookend that's holding up the library of scripture. It quite literally begins at the start of our Bibles and it's at the end. At the start, it's the creation narrative where God brings order and harmony out of the chaos and he sets the world in a state of shalom. It is all right as it should be. And at the end of the Bible, at the end of Revelation, from John's Revelation, everything is returned to that state of shalom. It looks a bit different now. It's moved from a garden to a city, but it's still shalom. All is restored. All is as it should be. Uh, Richard Foster conveys the vision of shalom, shalom with these words. They're, they're really good. We, sorry, when we are in harmony with God, faithfulness and loyalty prevail. When we are in harmony with our neighbor, justice and mercy abound. When we are in harmony with nature, peace and unity reign. This is the vision of shalom. Now on that retreat at that Benedictine monastery that I was telling you about earlier, um, on the Friday night, we, we practiced Sabbath together as a retreat. And so we had this Sabbath feast on Friday night, but as part of the Sabbath feast, as we got ready for it, there was a couple of little rituals we did. We lit the Sabbath candles and uh, said a few different prayers together. And um, we poured a big glass of wine at the table and we, 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 we toasted the Sabbath. And as we did that, we said the phrase... Oh, my laptop's like, there we go. Shabbat Shalom. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to toast and to say Shabbat Shalom? Well, it means, literally, it means peaceful Sabbath. <laughs> That's what it means, peaceful Sabbath. But actually, it's got a little bit more to it than that. It means this, on this day of rest that we are now entering on Sabbath, would everything be at rights? You know, it's more than just this greeting or a toast or a great little saying. It's a potent vision 
of life lived in the space that it's meant to be lived. It's a vision of life where God's rule and reign is fully realized. It's the statement of hope and it's a prayer of that hope. God, may everything be at rights. Shabbat Shalom. And Shalom is this great beacon of the Hebrew people of what was right and as it was meant to be. God ruling, people flourishing, and all of creation fruitful and thriving. And so, as I land the plane today, Hesed is steadfast love. Mishpat is justice action. And Shalom, Shalom is where everything is at rights. Everything is at rights. And these together make the perspective of what Jesus' vision of social justice would have been. When Jesus thought about how the world should be at rights, these three things together would have blended to form the picture. It would not have just been justice without compassionate love, nor would it just be compassionate love without a sense of things being called to being right. It is the dynamic dance of all three things together. And so when we think of what social justice should be, we need to think of it like Jesus. Let me summarize. To Jesus, Yahweh is a God of compassion, unfailing love and steadfast love, actively at work, restoring, redeeming and setting things as they should be. And we too are called to embody that. Amen? Maybe to summarize, let me just go back to Psalm 85 verse 10. We're called to be people who live this prayer. People where steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. People where righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Today, my benediction is simply this. May, may you become more and more a person of steadfast love, of said. May you become more and more a person of mishpat, of justice. May you become more and more a person of shalom, of peace, of things being as they should be. May you become the person that Jesus' way is embodied in that way to be in the world. So may you, may you live compassion for social rightness. That's my benediction to you today. May you live compassion for social rightness. So, how does that play out? How do we do that? Wow, that's what the next two weeks are for. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about how we actually play this out into real time. We're going to talk about the things that need to be thought about as a practice, as we think about how we become the people of that vision that Jesus had, living out compassion and justice and all things being right into the world. And two, I want to invite you to stand. It's been wonderful to be with you today. I hope that word's encouraging and I hope it grabs a seed in your heart and I hope it brings something fruitful. I wonder if uh, for some of you, a simple task this week might be to take that Psalm, Psalm 85 verse 10, and just take that into your prayer life with Jesus. Just simply over and over again, sitting on that Psalm, Psalm 85 verse 10. God, I want to be a person where steadfast love, where faithfulness meets. I want to be a person where righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Grow that in my life. And I wonder what might happen if you did that every day. 
with Jesus. You know, I wonder what kind of conversations you might have in your circle this week as you kick this stuff around and you think about this together. I wonder what kinds of parts of the triangle have been missing for you as you think about social justice or if you look at social justice in our world and you realize, oh, our world is forgetting that whole piece of the triangle. You know, I just wonder what you might kick around. And so this talk, as all of our talks are, this talk is the start of a conversation. It's not to try and end the conversation. So I invite you to that conversation with Jesus and with each other. Let me pray for you.